Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I'm joined by the brilliant Oliver Patrick. Oliver is a physiologist and leading expert in lifestyle management. And last year in December, we recorded an episode together where we discussed the topic of energy management, how to manage your physical, mental, and emotional energy, how to get more energy. And it was a really interesting episode. So if you haven't already heard that one, I would encourage you to scroll back, search for that, give it a listen, that episode was Understanding Energy, 6th of December, 2020. Okay, so today we're gonna be talking all about alcohol and I am on a mission to find out, is alcohol really all that bad? Alcohol is a topic that I've discussed with quite a few health and fitness professionals, doctors, nutritionists. It's something that comes up a lot and I think it's very important to look at all the variety of factors that we need to consider before we can say in a binary way, yes, alcohol is either good or bad. So in today's episode, I want to talk to Ollie about the physiological effects of alcohol, the social and emotional influence of drinking, and some stats about our alcohol consumption here in the UK, and why some people might want to try giving up alcohol altogether for 30 days, as I know millions of people give up alcohol in October to take part in the popular campaign Stoptober. I think I'm going to even try and suggest that me and my husband do that as well this year after a very indulgent summer. So if you are one of the millions of people who wants to give up alcohol soon, or maybe even Jai January, I know that's another popular one, then we're going to be talking about how we can approach that, uh, the benefits of drinking less. We're going to talk about things to avoid, some strategies and advice. And it goes without saying that this podcast is not medical advice. I am not a doctor, so please do get further support from a healthcare professional if that is something that you feel as though you need after listening to this episode. All right, let's get into it. Welcome back to the show, hey, Ollie. So good to be back. It's been too long. Well, it's not been. It's, it's, I've well, seen you recently, but I've not been on the pod since December. You have seen me recently. I feel as though you are an acquaintance who is becoming, who I'm gonna, who I'm gonna basically reel in to become a friend. Oh, well, I'm, I'm excited to be on the end of that tether. I'm coming in, I'm coming in hot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and sadly today we are not together in person. Otherwise I would have perhaps offered you a drink, but um, thanks for joining us and let's dive in to all things alcohol. All things alcohol, what a topic, ranging. Yeah, yeah. this could go anywhere. Well, first up, how much does the topic of alcohol come up in the work that you do? It's a great question. I think the world I, I emerged from, so I'm sort of 24 years in, in health screening and health assessing, you know, really, as we touched on in the last podcast, my life has been spent not um, in medical research, but actually delivering sort of executive health assessments, corporate health assessments, and, and working with generally normal people to try and work out if they are ill without their knowing, or if they're becoming ill without perhaps there being signs and symptoms, or explain away why they don't feel as good as they would expect to feel, and what might be the data contributing to that. So within that process, 
it's important to note that I'm not a doctor. My, my job as a physiologist was to aggregate physiological data um, and try and create lifestyle strategies that would take the data from the point we met the person to an improved position down the line. So certainly when I ended up in my later job delivering the world's most advanced health assessment, that was you know, nearly unlimited data. So every person coming in, you know, would, would have a sort of, it was a 15,000 pound product and rising, you know, we'd have every test you could think to run on a human being. And then from that test data, we would give a very clear strategy and that would involve lifestyle changes. And then we'd measure that person again, periodically through a, a one year period and see whether those lifestyle changes worked. So I've always been sort of maybe the most visibly accountable lifestyle professional. Because if I go, oh, mm. I'd like you to meditate, then I've got 15 parameters that I measured that would be affected by meditation. And, and if none of them improve, then maybe I gave the wrong strategy. So, mm. uh, you know, in that, in that guise, alcohol came up every time. So, you know, another classic long-winded answer to a very good question. But I think, you know, probably in my early, early days of doing health assessments, you know, one of the big hot topics was, is the volume of alcohol I'm drinking doing me damage or am I getting away with it? And I think, you know, every single person who has a relationship with alcohol has that question floating over their head, which is, where am I tipping on this? You know, I, I know I'm dancing with a toxin, but am I, am I dancing on the safe side of that toxin or am I edging into the, the wrong side? But I think the perception of what the damage would be was 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 a little bit lacking certainly in the early days mm. and I think that what's interesting from what you said to me there I'm thinking about data points and as you said you can test you've got real real data you've got real information there to look at and I think that's really important because I don't know you'll probably agree what people say they do versus what they actually do is often quite different. So if you ask somebody, you know, how often do you drink alcohol? How much do you drink alcohol? Or even things like how much do you exercise or how much do you, we often kind of, not intentionally, I don't think we intentionally mislead others and ourselves, yeah. but we often play certain things down, play certain things up. You might say, oh, only a couple of times <clears> a week, or you might say, oh, I exercise five times a week. When you actually look at the data, sometimes it's like, oh, actually those two things, what we think we do and what we actually do don't always match. That's so, so true. And, and again, sometimes that's completely innocent. Or we've built a sort of false, you know, appreciation of the work that we do and, and all we're recalling on you know ollie patrick of yesteryear i'm like oh, i'm fit because i used to be fit and i just assume that that legacy has continued on yet when you're about to do a you know a vo2 max and measure someone's cardio fitness suddenly the amount of cardio they do drops down it's like oh no no it is, maybe it is less than once every two weeks and when you're doing a body composition the weight training suddenly drops off because people realize that they're going to be held accountable to the outcome of what they're doing I think in yeah. that metric, you know, the, the piece of data most people were interested in was liver function. So, you know, if you had your traditional health assessment from 90s up to 2000s, you know, a key component of that would be blood work. And a key component of that blood work will be a group of tests in your biochemistry called liver functions. Uh, and they're really looking to see whether the enzymes involved in detoxification are overworking compared to a, you know, sort of a, a, a nationalized baseline. And I find it really interesting where liver function was sort of used as the, as the benchmark or litmus test of whether that individual was drinking too much. So you'd get someone coming in and they'd say, I'm a bit worried about my drinking. Um, I'm worried about my liver because I've, I've, I have built a rudimentary understanding that too much alcohol is 
detoxified by my liver and that could lead to the liver itself as an organ becoming damaged. So I'd like a marker that proves that's not true. And you know, you would run that test and, and the result would come back as normal. And then the person would say, okay, so that means I'm getting away with my alcohol. And, and that's where you end up with almost what you'd call a, a false negative in, in clinical testing. In the fact that I've told you, you haven't got a problem, but you actually have. Because mm. I suppose at that stage, you know, the biggest thing that people hadn't appreciated was the collective negative impact of alcohol above and beyond its potential impact on the liver. And, mm. you know, until I got into the later days of doing health assessments, I had very little data on that because other organs that are affected by, um, by alcohol are less measurable, less tangible. The brain, for example, which is hugely impacted by alcohol. But still, in your average modern health assessment, there's no diagnostic data taken on the brain. You know, and, and, and as you and I sit here now, we are our brain. So it's so odd, isn't it, that you know, we've got you know, 200, 300 tests for our cardiovascular system and, and near enough zero objective diagnostic tests for the brain. So you know, this person who had a normal liver function enzyme on their alcohol intake is going, oh, that's good, but they're actively moving towards some kind of alcohol-related brain damage they're actively encountering symptoms that have been misdiagnosed as, as mental health or psychological disorders that have been driven by alcohol. And, you know, first and foremost for me, they, they had no idea what alcohol was doing to their sleep. No idea at all. Mm. Uh, and partly because you know, alcohol is, is this incredibly misleading element that actually helps you fall asleep. And if falling asleep is your litmus test again of, of success, you know, it's a very difficult discussion without data to go, yes, you fell asleep with alcohol, but my goodness, the architecture of that sleep was, was, was terrible compared to what it might be without alcohol. So I think, to, you know, some of it, everyone was interested in it. Everyone who drank was interested in it, but they were looking at maybe a marker that was, was a narrow view of something that had a much broader impact. Yeah, well, that's where I wanted to go, I suppose. If we think about those broader impacts, and you mentioned the brain being one, could you explain for us both the short-term and the long-term effects of, say, moderate drinking? Yeah, I suppose, I suppose moderate drinking is always an interesting one. In fact, you know, we, we've got the guidelines that, that sort of have this theoretical 14 units, you know, a, a, a week. Again, even with 14 units, I think if you drink, if I as a male drink more than eight units, that's classified as a binge. And you as a female, okay. more than six units, that's classified as a binge. So those 14 units. And if I could jump in there, if I could jump in there, sorry to interrupt you, but the units thing I think is quite confusing because when I was looking at, you know, researching for this episode and I, I read that 14 units of alcohol, yep. I didn't actually know what that meant. And so I'm not going to assume that all of our listeners would know either. You might think that means 14 drinks or you might think that means, you know, what does it mean? So I think the 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 average I found was an average of six pints of beer or seven glasses of wine yes. per week. That's the guideline, isn't it? So 14 units per week and that's six six pints of beer or seven glasses of wine, which honestly, I mean, I when I first read that, I thought, God, that sounds like quite a lot. But I know for some people, they could probably drink seven glasses of wine in one evening or two evenings. Yeah. And so if you're drinking, you know, consistently, five days a week or, or some people drink every day then I can see how yeah I guess people could be drinking double that quite easily That's a really really good point I think two parts to that so the units pieces is really interesting because alcohol you can't do that by volume per se easily because obviously different concentrations of alcohol will provide more condensed units so you know a shot of alcohol uh, you know a shot of a spirit a glass of wine a pint 
are all ending up in that bracket somewhere around two to three units. And if I have a pint of lager chasing back to my memory, you know, that, that's just over sort of 4% alcohol, that's two units or just more than. But if that's a, a sort of 6% alcohol, you know, one of these continental lagers as, as a, what they might be lovingly called, um, then that can be three units. So, you know. What about a cocktail? What about a margarita or a... Or a yeah, good question. Yeah, so it depends how many shots how there many, are, How many it? units so, is that? So, you know, you'd need a better cocktail waiter than I to tell you. But, you know, you'd normally base that on the number of shots of spirit within it. So if a traditional shot is 25 mils, um, you know, double 50 mils, I think, from Vardes, then if you've got yeah. 75 mils um, of alcohol, three different spirits in there, and they're yeah. strong spirits, 40%, you know, you could be talking about, you know, five, six units in that drink, you know, if it's absolutely... Up. Okay, I'm suddenly feeling quite a lot worse about my Negronis. And, well, and again, you, know, you might... <laughs> definitely went over the limit of seven, uh, what is it, 14 units, definitely went over yeah. that. So again, you have six units, that's classified as binge drinking. I think, you know, heavy alcohol use from memory, again, is 50 units for a male, 35 units for a female, which, again, again, good rule of thumb, there's about um, 10 units in a bottle of wine, you know, so roughly about that. So, you know, I've got lots of friends who do a bottle of wine a night and, and they'll be classified as, as heavy drinkers. In fact, I think there's about 25% of people in the UK would be classified as heavy drinkers. So, okay. So if we're thinking moderate to heavy, so someone who says, oh no, I'm not drinking a bottle of wine every night. I'm just having one yeah. glass or someone that says, oh, maybe I drink five nights yeah. a week. Um, yeah. Short term and long term effects broadly for them outside of just that liver yeah, test. Good, good question. So, you know, the, the, the short term effects, are, are probably the ones that they can feel, you know, and, and let's also at this point bring in something that often gets left out of these conversations. It makes you feel pretty good, right? There's a reason you do it. There's a reason I do it. There's a reason lots of people do it. There's a reason it's a global industry. Um, so short term effects are I'll suppress some of the activity of my frontal lobe, which is otherwise known as boring Ollie, my frontal lobe. Boring Ollie doesn't want to jump off that rock. Boring Ollie doesn't want to, you know, throw all his uh, all his money onto a, a three-legged horse at Ascot. Boring Ollie doesn't want to, you know, chance doing something that, that might take him out of himself. So we can shake off the, the sort of restrictive part of ourselves by down-regulating the activity of the frontal lobe, the, the very sort of the, the, the front aspect of the brain. And actually, when you see people who get sort of big frontal lobe injuries, they sort of walk up to people on the street and go, I want to have sex with you. And, you know, and, and you're like, oh, blimey. <laughs> Um, that's a nice compliment. Um, I'm not sure that's how everyone would view such things. But, you know, they, they, they've lost that ability to... to the filter. The filter, right? And, and that's what alcohol's mm. doing. So lots of people feel that filter is oppressive and alcohol removes it and that frees up their self-self. And, and so that's that can be good and bad, as all things can be. Um, it's also associated with endorphin release, with, you know, the happy neurochemicals that make us feel, um, you know, short-term pleasure, but pleasure nonetheless. So we don't drink, you know, without reason. We also, you know, have naturally, culturally aligned it with huge social elements. You know, if you've got five of your closest friends all with their inhibitions shaken off, that, that's the recipe for a great time. So, yeah, celebrations often involve a lot of alcohol, don't they? Like our everything from our birthdays, Christmas, weddings, it's all about a toast, a glass, a bottle. So much of our celebration and, and what we perceive as enjoyment and fun yeah involves drinking alcohol so you know in the short term i'm going to feel those benefits the short term mm. you know from a health point of view of course the biggest risk is the sedation of reaction time in the fact that you know that's why i can't drive it's why i can't operate heavy machinery uh, i may feel um 
that I've, I've got rid of boring Ollie and now I'm superhuman and I'm going to do things I couldn't do, but my reaction times and capability to do it is worse. So, you know, so much of alcohol damage is in injury. <laughs> if you go to A&E on a Saturday night, it was people where they found this beautiful sweet spot between believing that they could now do a pull up off a bridge and at the same time, simultaneously not having the coordination to do it, you know, so mm. that, that that piece is, is a real physical musculoskeletal injury risk, you know, torn hamstrings running, running down the high street and all the, all the fun things. So it's a suppression of reaction time. It's short term impact would, would be mostly dressed up in it's, you know, the things that people would classify as a hangover, you know, it's a diuretic. So it encourages us to urinate much more than we would need to. And that can lead to a, a you know, a cellular dehydration. So how much of the, the short-term impact is alcohol versus how much is the dehydration as a result of alcohol? You know, if, I, if I'm absolutely dependent on a night's sleep to go through various different stages and phases, you know, to wake up restored, to boost my immune system, if alcohol negates those things, then I won't have an upregulated immune system. I won't have um, memory consolidation. Um, I won't be restored, you know, so that's short-term. You mentioned the, the word hangover. I wanted to jump on that because I think people often just think about waking up with a foggy yeah. head. But I've also read and heard a lot about the kind of gut hangover of alcohol and how it can damage the gut and why we feel why people might feel nauseous and say, oh, they, they can't eat the next day. They might want to just have a slice of toast for breakfast because they feel sick. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, what's going on there with the gut? If we've had a lot to drink, why would we have, I guess, like a gut hangover the next Great day? Point. So it's a direct irritant of the gut is alcohol. So, you know, the actual lining of the gut is irritated by um, the chemical process of alcohol. So, you know, it, it's it's got an impact. And again, as with all things, that will be accelerated, decelerated, depending on your genetic, you know, robustness, but also affected by the, the volume of food that's gone into the gut prior to. So you've got people, you know, drinking a pint of milk to buffer their hangover or, or you know, having a big meal before they go out drinking or people saying eating is cheating because they want to absorb more alcohol quickly. But fundamentally, you know, alcohol and the gut are not friends. Um, it's an important point of this to note that, that no system of biology and alcohol are friends. Right? So there is no classifiable health benefit to alcohol whatsoever. Ah, that's interesting because we hear that, don't we? Especially from people who love red wine, like me. Whenever you see an article that says red wine is good for you, it's full of um, polyphenols, antioxidants, all of these things, boosts heart health. So I think a lot of people, especially older generations, I've heard that so many times, but they're like, red wine is good for you, drink it in abundance. It, it, <laughs> but you're telling me it's a myth. It's not true. Well, it's, it's a really interesting one because it's a bit like coffee is good for you and coffee, again, full of antioxidants and 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 you know, these incredible compounds that buffer disease and, and reduce, you know, the damage of our world upon us and, and red wine also. But the coffee is good for you. Caffeine is not, you know, alcohol, sorry, red wine is good for you. Alcohol is not. So, you know, this, uh. this creates one of these great challenges that nothing is singularly good or bad. So you could take a glass of red wine and say, yeah, I get these polyphenols, which are elements that will um, perform critical biological roles within the body. So polyphenols particularly will reduce something called inflammation, which, you know, is something that's associated with most chronic diseases of aging, heart attacks, cancers, strokes, but also, you know, lethargy and fatigue. And the antioxidants that are in um, red wine, particularly this thing called resveratrol, is associated with, yes, slowing the aging process. And in fact, there's a, there's a very prominent, um, uh, I want to say Harvard, but it might be Stanford, um, scientist called David Sinclair, who's really one of the pioneers of anti-aging. And his whole career hinged on the fact that he felt resveratrol 
was the single most powerful anti-aging compound um, available to, to, to mankind. And that was about its role in reducing what we call oxidative stress, which is, again, where just life, by breathing oxygen, we create a little poisonous trail called a free radical, and, and resveratrol will play a role in mopping that up. Um, it has a, a crucial role in, in a few biological systems, but it actually increases the activity of something called sirtuins, which basically chomp up debris and dead cells in the body that might aggregate or speed up aging. So he's, he's, he's like, resveratrol is the nutrient of, of you know, longevity, but that's not the same as red wine. That just happens to be in red wine because resveratrol is held in the, the skin of the red grape. Um, it's not available until that grape has gone through some kind of, and I, I don't know whether it's a heating process or as the, as the grape degrades, resveratrol becomes released. So you don't get it from eating red grapes. There needs to be some, um, it's a bit like lycopene, which is in tomatoes. You need to cook them to get it. So it's some chemical change in the in the in the manufacturing process. So you know, alcohol is not good for us. You know, it's a net negative in, in all cases. You know, there's no health benefit to alcohol against what what people would want to say. But if that alcohol is wrapped up alongside resveratrol and all these polyphenols, if that alcohol enables me to spend time with my best friends and laugh my crackers off and, you know, and, and, you know, have an incredible release of stress, if that alcohol does all these other things, then you can argue, well, then it's net positive, despite the fact as a toxin, as an irritant of my gut, as a, again, something that directly affects the pattern of my brain, those those biological impacts are outweighed by the biological positives in the other systems. So, you know, and again, that takes us to the to the brain. So, alcohol is a gut irritant. Um, it's it's a sleep enabler, but but it ruins sleep architecture. So, architecture is this phrase that describes different phases and stages. I've got this rapid eye movement sleep where I dream and I process, and I've got deep sleep where I build my immune system. And those two in particular are, are vulnerable to alcohol's impact. Um, so alcohol keeps you in light sleep and it, it fragments sleep. So I can, you know, booze myself up, sleep for 12 hours, but get none of the restorative benefit of six and a half, seven hours of quality sleep. Um, yeah. From a brain point of view, again, you know, it, it's it's creating short-term impacts, but really it, over an aggregated period of time. The challenge is how many of those short-term impacts are because I'm dehydrated and I didn't sleep well and how many a direct impact of alcohol. But over that hangover period, you generally look at the fragmentation of sleep, the um, uh, irritation of the gut, the dehydration, and sorry, the, and the fourth one would be the fact that alcohol makes it more likely you go into hypoglycemia, so you've got low blood glucose, which yeah. would correlate with people feeling hangry and carb-centric. And, and again, yeah, wake up feeling like give me all give the me things to eat because, cup. and again, because you haven't slept well. Because I think you know, we know that the poor sleep also impacts our appetite and our mood. So, I guess it's compounded by the fact that, as you said, you've got this drop in your uh, blood sugar, but also if you've had poor sleep, you're tired. So, I guess you know, looking at those things, and maybe as you just described, the emotional, social the emotional and social benefit if you are having you know the best night of your life the next day you feel a bit rubbish and you might say you know what life's full of trade-offs i'll take that but i think going back to this idea of people who have a habit of drinking you know alcohol maybe one or two glasses a night i think that's where people kind of 
struggle to say, is this acceptable? Is this okay? Is that small impact on my sleep, my gut health? You know, I'm not binge drinking, but I'm drinking quite frequently. I think that's where a, a lot of the problem or maybe not even just, even the even the fact I'm saying problem, I think it's maybe important as well to, to yeah, just touch on this idea of there being some kind of difference between alcohol dependency alcoholism you know understanding when does something become an addiction when does something i guess go from a habit to an addiction because some people might say yeah i have a habit of opening a glass of wine and i enjoy it but i don't have a problem i don't have an addiction if i wanted to i could stop so yeah is there a way i guess for us to kind of think about that those categories and and maybe for people to test for themselves and consider which one and which one of of those suits my drinking style the best very very good point and and would be outside of my specific skill set because that you know in in terms of whether it's a dependency, the, the threshold for alcoholism, um, I would always want a general practitioner to, to harbour that, your traditional doctor. I think, you know, you, you, you know you've got a problem if someone says I can give it up and you, and you determine that there's a, there's a deliberate reason, be that some data that's going in the wrong direction or some health goal thereafter or something broader that they want to achieve that you both agree on and they're unable to give it up. You know, the sort of very nature of the word dependency, it means you, you need it. So, you know, the, the question always is if you can't give yourself a period of abstinence. And I think that's where things like Stocktober and Dry January can work really well to give people a framework of, of how deep those habits have, have intertwined with a dependency and say, look, yeah. am I in control? You know, if, if I'm totally in control and I haven't got big social events, weddings or, or friends, you know, birthdays, or, or even if I have, if I said I, I can't go without this substance for a four week period, then I, I just want to take a, a reflection on where my relationship with it has got to. You know, and, and that's not for the sake of putting a banner on it or, or creating alarm bells, because you know, lots of people have dependency on exercise. And you know, the, these things, you know, it's, it doesn't create a, a, a badge that you have to wear. You know, if you can't go through October without drinking, that doesn't mean you're, you're a full blown alcoholic or have alcoholism, but it does create an interesting question that if you're seeing you know aspects of your life that that are that are negatively being affected by alcohol then bringing some additional support in would, would be entirely logical you know and mm. you know the great challenge with health is it's not binary it's not i've got this massive problem or i haven't we're all on a spectrum between having a perfect relationship with alcohol and having a grossly dysfunctional relationship with alcohol and if you're a little bit closer to that latter group then then speaking you know to to again i always like general practitioners at the front line saying like, I've, I've just started to feel my relationship with alcohol is not where I want to be and what we would find in, in clinics is often the simple having of that conversation enables the person to take positive actions and, and they feel much more in control of their life so the verbalizing of it is is always the first step yeah and I think that it's it can change can't it so you might think you know you might have had a really stressful period of, of time where you might have started to drink more or you might have had a real you know summer of celebration and been drinking more whatever the reason is I think it's important to note that it can change it can go up it can go down and so maybe this is a good point actually to get into some of my questions about giving up alcohol so if someone's listening to this and thinking yeah actually I'm going to do Stocktober um, or Jai January or, or whatever time they decide to listen to this episode and give themselves a, a challenge I'm all about you know actionable things you know I love a goal setting exercise um so if someone was going to do that for 30 days I've got a few questions for you I guess for things they could consider and maybe strategies to to make that a successful 30-day challenge so first up we've talked a lot about you know some of the 
implications physiological of drinking alcohol. So what are the most common health benefits that people would expect to see, to feel in the first 30 days of giving up drinking? Energy is always number one, you know, always number one. And, and you know, if you're on Instagram and you're, you're sort of hitting end of October, end of January, and it's not someone beaming down their phone going, I've never felt more energy. I'm waking up with, you know, feeling amazing. You know, and, it, and energy, of course, transposes into everything. You know, if I've got more available energy, then suddenly my skin will be a little clearer because I've got more capability to buffer the, the breakouts that I'm getting. You know, if I've got more available energy, I would expect my relationship with potential low-grade irritable bowel syndrome or digestive discomfort to be better managed. So you sort of, what you'll get is, again, on end of October, end of January, is people going, my thing, you know, my tell, and we've all got to tell, right? You know, it's like that thing that when you're pushing too hard at work, when relationships are not in the right place, when your body is, is getting an inadequate balance between the resources of, of, you know, expending energy and recouping energy, we get a tell. For some people, it's their psoriasis flares up. For other people, it's, it's mood stability. For someone else, it's digestive. For someone else, it's, it's breakouts. And that's just really the premise that our body's always fighting to keep our tell hidden until it doesn't have enough energy to do so. So what, what I would expect is if I met with someone and, and I wrote down, you write to me the thing that goes wrong when you're super stressed. Write to me the thing that goes wrong when, when you have a really busy period at work or, or you have a breakup or a bereavement. And at the end of that month, having given up alcohol, that thing will be markedly improved. Uh, and, mm. and again, I, I can't say how much of that is a direct mechanism of, well, now I'm not detoxifying alcohol. Now my brain isn't again, facing this sort of inflammatory challenge. Now my gut's not being irritated. What I, what I would definitely say is look at the data of what bad sleep causes and look at the data of what alcohol causes and that Venn diagram crosses over almost entirely. So the challenge is how much of, of alcohol's damage is through its corruption of sleep and how much is a direct mechanism. And I think at, at a functional level, as in 30 days, here I am, people will feel they've never slept better, they've never had more energy. Um, and yet, as you and I both know, they'll probably, first of November, organise a massive lash up in the pub. <laughs> well, we're going to come to that in a minute. So, yeah, we're going to get to that in a minute. But my next question is about social events. So we've just said lots of social events involve drinking, involve alcohol. And a lot of people feel like, you know what, I'm just a more fun version of myself when I'm drinking. Or they might feel a pressure from other people to say, oh, come on, don't be so boring, you know, drink. So if someone's given it up for 30 days and they are going to a wedding or even just, I don't know, after work, drinks what could they do is it a case that you just have to stay home for 30 days and not see anybody or yeah what's kind of what's your advice there for people who still want to socialize and not drink uh, yeah i think a couple of things i think it's never been more socially acceptable you know i think that conversation five years ago ten years ago was much more difficult i think people are more open to someone saying you know what i'm, I'm doing this and and there'll be a much greater societal acceptance of that second caveat is is low and no are are reaching incredible levels you know we we saw um you know no alcohol gin alternatives boom as an organization the the range of ipas and and lagers wine is still struggling um you know the, the flavor in in alcohol does contribute to what people would perceive as, as good wine so but low and no is creating you know the, the option that i don't think there's many places certainly uk europe where there wouldn't be a a, a low or no alcohol option equivalent and again, if, I, if we take that example yeah. of the pint earlier, there, there's multiple lagers coming out with 2%, 2.2%. 2 
you know, so there you're talking about one unit per pint, you know, so you can do five pints before you start getting to similar, you know, territory as, as your single cocktail. I'll, I'll do one step back. That just reminds me that we haven't talked about the calorie density of alcohol, which is also relevant, you know, so when, when I used again, do those health assessments, someone say, oh, how's my alcohol? You say your liver function's normal, but you're knackered, you know, your gut's not in great shape, et cetera, and you can't shift weight. That becomes a really interesting one where there's obviously an energy density to alcohol. It's seven calories per gram, which puts it just behind fat in terms of its energy density. But it's not just mm -hmm. its impact on, on direct calories. It's, as you mentioned rightly, it's that hypoglycemic carbohydrate, poor sleep, monster who wakes up the day afterwards and, and does about a year's worth of, of feasting in 22 minutes so <clears throat> i think well not even the morning after well, ollie i think maybe speaking from my own experience <laughs> i feel like someone who if i've had a lot to drink i don't wait until i don't go to bed wake up in the morning hungry i feel like the maybe the reason i don't get hangovers is because i eat before i go yeah. to bed so i will come oh, back and i'm like oh my yeah. goodness i'm starving and i'll either make some toast i'll, I'll put i've been known to put a pizza in yeah. the oven at yes. 2 a.m and i'll eat something then have a big pint of water and then i wake up and i feel great but the reality is i'm still eating a pizza at two o'clock <laughs> in the morning which to be honest i don't you know once in a while it doesn't matter but i think the yeah i think the calorie part is important for a lot of people and some people won't want to you know they don't like the word calories but for some people it is important they do measure it i've actually heard well two things to say here one is that i've heard a lot of people that would say to me i would rather drink my calories than eat them which i when i first heard that i was like what do you mean mm. and they basically said well if i go out for dinner go out for cocktails go out for drinks people some people would rather have two cocktails and two glasses of wine and have a tiny little salad and there's like well i'm not having dessert and i'm not having this so i can i can happy almost like you know bulk up have those calories in a drink instead yeah. which as we know from a nutritional benefit but a nutritional perspective is probably you know terrible yeah. and then uh, another thing to add to that is a a friend of mine who's a fitness professional, he actually did an Instagram post a few weeks ago. He'd just come back from a lovely holiday with his wife and two children. And he said, whilst I was away on holiday, I still exercised, I still hit the gym every day. My meals were pretty much the same, but I was drinking cocktails by the pool all afternoon, every day. He said that when he came back, he'd put on seven kg. And he was like, wow, seven kilograms. And he basically said it's the sugar and the alcohol because nothing else really had Amazing. changed. And he kind of was in this post was kind of just saying to people, look, beware of liquid calories because there's probably a lot more in it than you think. So yeah, I think for people who are calorie conscious or, or as you say, people that struggle with weight management, they might be really surprised actually to realize in a whole week how many calories they consume through a glass. I, I totally, totally agree. And it's much more, again, energy dense than people would give it credit for, you know, to, 300 400 calories in, in pints depending on, on where you get to you know that would take five pints over a week for me to put on a pound of weight you know every single week and, and what's that look like six months later a year later so it, it's it's definitely relevant from a weight management perspective you know directly and as you rightly say indirectly and it sneaks up and again your, your point there is also critical it's it's an anti-nutrient versus a nutrient right so it's not something i'm putting in my body that provides uh, you know, a benefit to my systems of biology. It's something that I have to deal with, detoxify, excrete. So it creates a challenge rather than than create an opportunity. If you put a nutrient in, it goes in and does something your body needs. You put alcohol, it goes in and does something your body hates. And and so the swing between having some nourishing food and, and three or four cocktails is, is far greater than the calorie discussion. It's really about the, the purpose of nutrition.
Well, to, to answer my previous question then, if people want to give up for 30 days and they're in a social environment, they should just play this podcast. <laughs> well, you know, just send them this episode. Yeah, there's, no, there's no, you know, nothing that would do the same job per se. You know, that ultimately, mm. you know, you've got to look at the, those benefits. It, it produces endorphins. So you could say, oh, you know, go, go for a social... Um, a social game of sport rather than going to, you know, you can live in fantasy land. I love it when people go, instead of, you know, having a glass of wine, run yourself an Epsom salt have bath. A mint have tea. a mint tea. It's like, you yeah. know. Have you, a mint tea. It was yeah, like, no, yeah, You've obviously never been in my workplace. Like so you've never met my friend. So it's, it's challenging. You know, things, you're looking for things that, that lose your inhibitions and things that create endorphins. And and that's that's the piece. So, you know, so that's, that is difficult if alcohol is a, a part of your persona. And it brings out a piece of you. I think that's an area that, that is worth discussing separately. Saying if I can't be myself self without alcohol, which part of me is holding that back? And that's another thing to discuss with a with a, a mental health professional, perhaps. You know, really sit with a psychologist and say, why do I like drunk Ollie more than sober Ollie? You know, what and how do I mm. narrow the gap between those two people? Because it, they're both me. You know, you're you're not a different person when you're under the influence of alcohol, you just sort of suppressed some some breaking mechanism. It's still you. If you're funnier, mm. you're that funny. You know, if you're if you're a little bit more intuitive, you're that person. You just need to work out how to release them without without alcohol. And I think, you know, the endorphin piece, there's no better endorphin, you know, production than than exercise. I think what's been great is is the role fitness has started to play as a as a social entity. You know, and yep. there's a really cool, interesting brand in America called Remedy um, uh, Remedy Place, which calls itself the the Social Wellbeing Club, and it it's actually it's New York was the original one in the Flatiron Building, and it's ice baths, and it's you know it's meditation pods, and it's a low I think it's a zero alcohol bar, and they're trying to create a place where people can go and date, you know, first dates or bring their friends where. The interaction is around physical activity, cold water plunge, sauna, and you're creating endorphin experiences in the absence of alcohol. And I think, you know, there's some some people looking at similar activities here in the UK where we say, look, I want I want those thrilling, fun, jovial experiences. But if it's happening in a pub, I'm, I can't see a way around it. So maybe it shouldn't happen in a pub. And I think... Well, that's the point when you mentioned the word date there that I thought actually a lot of people probably, you know, win kind of get, I guess, exempt from this as two married people. But I have a friend who's dating at the moment and she said that she was arranging to meet this guy on a date and he suggested meeting at lunch for a coffee and obviously for a first date. She was like, wow, it really took me back because she said often it's like, let's meet for a drink, let's meet for dinner. And she even said herself, she said that kind of safety blanket of ordering a cocktail yes. or having a gin and tonic, you know, feeling a bit relaxed, feeling, she said, actually, it's a di very different feeling to say we're meeting at daytime we're meeting at lunch we're meeting for yep. coffee and you know i don't know whether he was a drinker or non-drinker but it was just more the fact that actually yeah if you're someone dating there's probably it's probably the go-to thing isn't it go to a bar go to a restaurant so even in in your stocktober if you're going to continue to date is there a way in which you're not putting yourself in that position of saying i'm not drinking you're sitting at a bar not ordering alcohol yep. but actually just yeah changing the environment and going somewhere completely different where alcohol isn't served i all. think i think that's going to be again increasingly acceptable in the modern world i think there's there's a group of people who just haven't you know, who, who are a little bit more intrinsically well-being focused. You know, Gen Z are, are much more, you know, of a well-being consumer than than millennials or, or baby boomers before them. So I think they've recognized, you know, they've recognized that the world is trying to make them feel anxious. 
and certain actions and behaviors will accelerate that or, or, or buffer that. And alcohol, unfortunately, will, will accelerate a predisposition for anxiety. You know, that, that mm. through, again, the fact that my biggest weapon, my biggest anti-anxiety medication is sleep. So again, is it alcohol? Is it is it alcohol's impact on sleep? But I think, you know, social events built around constructs that aren't eating and drinking is a really interesting and new dynamic. And and again, shifting the time of day location would be a key piece of that. And again, flicking back to to your point, which you made just there, is nothing that you do occasionally is is a big problem for human physiology. You know, we're the aggregate sum. Yeah, doing something once. So once you know, yeah. And again, I. I was not a prolific data. I'll put that out on the uh, on the pod. Um, I missed the the digital dating revolution, sadly. Um, not sadly, actually, would have been would have been terrible for me. But principally, you would have well, been great. You're very good on the text. <laughs> you would have been. You're very witty. Yeah, and then you disappoint. You know, what you don't want to do is, is build a preamble and then disappoint. Um, I think, you know, I think in in this new world, you know, coming back to the the point. If I don't date every single night, was the point I was gonna gonna retrieve, which would have been extremely unlikely. Then a couple of nights a week where I am drinking, that's not a drama. Right? You know, it's mm. it's a cost benefit analysis. This is the great challenge of well-being that we can't come out and say anything is singularly good or bad. We can say yes, alcohol as a chemical construct is a toxin that is bad, but the application of alcohol into a drink, social environment, date. You know, how many of us wouldn't be married without alcohol? And how many people wouldn't have kids without alcohol? Oh, that's a question. Oh, wow. That is a question that I didn't write down. How many of us would be married? Or how many how many people exist? How many people got pregnant because of alcohol? <laughs> I mean, that is a brilliant so question. So may, maybe I am a result of, of the upside of alcohol. So, you know, we can't demonize the act. What we have to do is understand if the act is under our control and whether we are making a, an informed choice, right? Which says, look, I'm going to go on this date. I'm going to drink. That's going to drop my shoulders a little because of the muscle relaxant impact. That's going to make me feel a bit more cocky, a bit more confident, maybe a bit more, you know, able to, to deal with rejection, he says, <laughs> getting ready for the, you know, <laughs> building my shield. And that's worth me waking up tomorrow a little hungrier. That's worth me waking up tomorrow with my immune system a little bit dilapidated. That's worth because the, the thrill of the opportunity is greater than the, the risk on the other side. So I think in those yeah. scenarios, it's great. It's when, and, and you've alluded to it, it's when you're coming home and there's not that social piece or there's not a construction of a, of a you know, a, a, you know I, I don't need to drop my inhibitions or I don't need to, to, to you know, find funny Ollie, but I'm doing it habitually on nights where there's none of those social constructs to leverage again. Then it's a much more pressing question to answer. 30 days alcohol free because I think often people say well what happens next so if you do your 30 days 
hooray, you get to the 1st of November. You've said before, maybe you go out and have a massive night out or maybe you just open a bottle of wine and you think, well, what was the point in doing that? Because I'm just going to carry on as I was before. So I guess my final question about Stocktober or going alcohol-free for 30 days is what do people do on day one of November? Well, what most people do is get hammered. So that that's... <clears throat> Yeah. Really? Is that is that the kind of habit? Is that the kind of like, what you'd expect to see? Is that if you give it up for 30 days, you're just going to binge afterwards. You're not going to slowly introduce it by having, you know, one glass of weekend. I think people will notice that they, they're more sensitive to it. But I think people generally save yeah. up an event, you know, for, for coming off it and recognise it's it's mm. a totally transient thing. I don't think many people do. In my, again, experience, which is biased to the people I've seen rather than, than a big data set, uh, most people do it on the basis of this sort of proxy idea of detoxification which is an interesting idea. Okay. And so, you know, the liver, you know, which is the organ that, that breaks down alcohol, fundamentally can regenerate itself a little when it's not being bombarded with, with things to deal with. So, you know, when we talk about detoxification, it's a word that's been, you know, horribly misused and thrown around. And, and most of our detoxifi- detoxification capabilities, of course, through our liver, through our kidneys, through our skin, through our stool, you know, we, we excrete the things that our body cannot use or, or would be long-term damaging to us. But we do need to, to support those organs to do that effectively. That sort of brings us back to the 14 units thing, which is, you know, it used to be 14 units. People said, oh, what I'll do is I'll save that all up and do it on a Saturday night. And that crossed over into the binge drinking concept where, where it was more than eight units, mm-hmm. more than six units in a sitting. But a really important part of that guideline is having two nights a week where you don't drink any alcohol at all to give the liver a chance to, to deal with the toxic load it's encountering. You know, the liver is also going to detoxify your medications. It's also going to detoxify a lot of other things that you ingest and enter your bloodstream. Supplements. Supplements. Right? I feel like some people don't always realise, but I found that out when I did a blood test. I spoke to you about this. And if you take a lot of supplements, then your liver might be working hard to detoxify them, especially if you're taking things that maybe you don't really need. And often we don't know without doing a test if we need to take B12, cod liver oil, iron, vitamin C, women's well, whatever, add them on. And then you just, I know friends who just, you know, they just next six supplements every morning because they think, well, and I think the common thing is, well, it's probably not going to do harm, but it probably is going to do good. And therefore, you know, they might not even know that it, the liver is having to work really, really hard to process this out. Other than, of course, if you see your illuminous um, urine after having some of those supplements, some supplements make your urine literally like a fluorescent highlighter. Absolutely. So I don't know if that is an indicator or not. Does that is that an indicator that our liver's working hard? Or does that's that not an indicator that lots of the nutrients have not been absorbed. So you know, your 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 kidneys have excreted. You know, the the the, the excessive elements. Some of them turn. It's predominantly the B vitamin family. Um, so if you're on a B vitamin, um, which might be in an effervescent, so the sort of thing you put into a, a glass of water and it fizzes up, then you're normally the one who, with with urine that's drifting towards sort of luminous green. Um, men, we have a much better chance because you're in the urinal and you can look over and go, my guy's <laughs> on a B in, in booth booth three. He's on a B vitamin. <laughs> you know, and, and so... I remember explaining this, honestly, as a parent, you probably, I remember explaining this to my son once um, when I don't know why I saw that his urine was dark, but I remember explaining to him that if you drink a lot of water, if you're hydrated, then it will be you yeah. know, clear. Um, and for the next few days, weeks, I just always remember him shouting downstairs from the bathroom when he'd go to the bathroom, I'm hydrated! <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I was like, thanks. Oh, thanks for letting so me know. Good. Thank you. So good. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and on, on any health-related podcast, we should be encouraging that clear coloured urine <laughs> colour. You know. But if you're on a B, you wouldn't know because it, you know, you, you flush so much through. Um, and interestingly, actually, long-term alcohol use 
significantly impairs um, the absorption of vitamin B1, which is, you know, B, it, the Bs, I think, were, were numbered in the order they were discovered. So B1 was the first one discovered. It's called thiamine. And it has a massive number of roles in the body, you know, from regulation of the, the nervous system to cardiovascular health, the brain health. So again, you're in that interesting question of, of is the problem I'm getting because of alcohol or is it because I don't have enough B1? Is it because I didn't sleep well and my sleep regulates my immune system? Was it because of the impact on the gut? You know, and again, it's it's the reason why alcohol is is not just correlated to liver disease. It's correlated to over 60, um, you know, diseases and rising because it's a multi-system wow. challenge. Again, it's the first, the way you're describing it there is making me picture the first domino. You know, it's the first domino to fall. Well, so if you take away alcohol, then the, all of those knock-on effects that you've just described, poor sleep, you know, binge eating on carbs, having fluorescent urine, all of these yes. things, that first domino, take that away for 30 yeah. days. And, you know, I think a lot of people um, are going to try it. And I hope that people listening to this show will, because I, I just think it'll be a very popular episode. I, I got a lot of questions yesterday when I did an Instagram story and said, I'm going to be doing an episode tomorrow all about alcohol. Lots of people replied. And so I actually screenshot, I actually did a screenshot of three questions that I'd like to, to ask you I'm about. i do all three. I'll just add one quick caveat. Well, not caveat. I yeah. just think your point of first domino is so, so wise. And I think maybe, maybe it's the second domino in the fact that, you know, most people are drinking you know, as part of an evening ritual, as part of their stress management. So in, in that regard, if I look again, how can I say that? You know, there's no World Health Organization guidelines on that, but we look at, but most people's reaction, and that's cultural. In the fact, if I watch any good ITV police drama, the lead detective, you know, often female will get home, crack the case, open the fridge, glass of wine on the side, you know, ah, you can physically hear her sort of going, ah. And, and that's, that's what we've been taught, that alcohol's the end of the day, alcohol's the end of play, alcohol's my reward. And, and again, if we think of the physiology of stress in, in a busy pent up world all day, I, I create more muscle tension. I breathe more from the top of my chest, not from my diaphragm. And all of that gets an immediate benefit when I drop alcohol into that system and I get the sort of soothing. So it is, is the first, you know, domino, not the not drinking, which changes the sleep, which changes the eating, but finding a different way of releasing that muscle tension. That means I don't need alcohol as my, as my salvation. I can use it as a social weapon. Because if I'm getting home and I've got kids, you know, screaming at my ankles and I've got, you know, a, a really difficult life, alcohol will make me feel good, take away my stress. But the, the ripple effect of it is, is significant. And so I always think the first domino is how can I find different ways of creating, you know, a release of muscle tension, some pleasure. And, and that's where low intensity exercise is incredible. That's where meditation is incredible. It's where breath work is incredible. It's where hot baths are incredible, saunas cold and we're seeing the sort of rise of technologies that people can't work out why they're rising so quickly and it's because they're making people feel in a way that replicates what alcohol does but with not just the downsides mm. absent a whole load of, of upsides present too so um i, I think yeah, I hadn't really considered that. And I like the fact that when you said it's the second domino, you didn't say or I maybe thought you were going to about the first domino is actually the cause, the reason for the stress. So actually address that first. But what you're saying is, you know, create something else, because I think the, the idea or the reality of saying to people, what's the thing that's causing stress? Remove that yeah. from your life, then you won't need to drink the alcohol. I don't think that's good, um, helpful advice for many people, because the modern world presents stress, presents challenges, our relationships, our work work, our parents, our children, all of these things. And I think the idea that people should just eliminate stress is just really unhelpful I advice. I just couldn't agree more. It's brilliant. You know, 
the world is the world, the stress is the stress. I don't want to get rid of my kids, but I want, and that's where we bring up the phrase resilience. You know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to face the same inputs, but buffer them, deal with them better. And the actions I take will be the biggest determinant of that. You know, if I take someone out two identical twins, the identical lives with identical days, and one gets home, you know, changes, goes for a, a, a light walk outside in nature, comes home, has a hot bath. Again, you know, again, let's not imagine they've got kids crawling around their ankles. People will be screaming down the, you know, down the podcast. I can't do that. You know, let's imagine they do that. And the other one gets home, has, a, you know, two glasses of alcohol. They're both going to feel pretty similar over the next, you know, two hours. But the, but the difference in, in those sort of sliding doors between their physiology there on in is, is so enormous. So we just got to think, how can I create the feeling alcohol gives me through things that aren't alcohol? If I feel that's become part of my routine and my habit, rather than I'm using it strategically and pleasurably with a clear understanding of the cost benefit of its actions. Because as you and I both openly admit, we use alcohol, but I think we use it with informed consent. And that's what we want going on for people who listen to this podcast. You know, make an informed decision, mm. not, not a bullied decision that, that doesn't understand the context of your life. Mm. Yeah, I think I quite openly blame my husband <laughs> and I think he, he, I think he quite proudly takes that because before I met him, I didn't used to drink alcohol. This is a whole new world to me. This whole thing of advice and not drink non-alcohol days, Stocktober. I didn't drink alcohol in my teens, in my twenties. So it really is a whole new world because now in my thirties and since marrying my husband, as I, I joke, I blame him, but we know that the influence of others, the actions and behaviors of others, they have an impact on us. It's scientifically proven. If you spend a lot of time with someone who exercises regularly, you are more likely to exercise regularly. If you spend a lot of time with somebody who uh, saves money, you are more likely to save money. And alcohol is no exception to that rule. And I think it's the first time in my life that I've really seen that play mm. out. Because even a friend who I went to school with, who's known me for years and years and years, she'll sometimes laugh and comment on my Instagram. She's like, look at you. She's like, she's basically like, this. who's this person? Because you didn't, you know, I'd go to birthdays, I'd go to Christmas, I'd go to weddings, I'd go to everything and I never felt the pressure of oh Adrian doesn't drink I just never had the desire to do it I never drank and so now it's very very different and so the idea that yeah I'm thinking gosh actually well we had a drink then and then we had a bottle of wine that night and then we went to that party and then we went the whole summer feels like I've been drinking alcohol yeah. um and it's interesting isn't it when you this is something actually I'm going to get to in a, in a moment but when you consider those relationships and if you think well Maybe I'll just cut to it actually. I'll go to the three well, questions yeah. that I took from Instagram because one of them is about this. So one of them is about saying, it's from a lady that said she wants to give up alcohol for good. So never mind 30 days. She's kind of like, you know, I've seen uh, the benefits of other people going alcohol free and that is what I want. However, she said, I think that I will potentially have to completely change my friendship group if I become a non-drinker forever. So I think she's kind of asking for advice and saying, you know, yeah, is that something that you just kind of have to accept? Well, you're going to find a new friendship group or is it the case that you can give up alcohol forever and remain with the same core friends, partner, you know, lifestyle that you have? Such a tough question. I, and I don't want to do it disservice because it, it needs more nuance and, and more care. I think, you know, principally, no, no one gives up or starts anything forever because forever is in a, an impossible target. You know, so. You, you can set a period of time to, to try and, and abstain from something with, the, because if you say forever and then you start drinking, you, you've broken it. You know, so it's like, I wanna drink proportionally less over this allocated time period and let me see how I get on. So I think, you know, to, 
But does that but does that work, Ollie, for all personalities? Because I think, you know, people talk about all or nothing and I think I'm an all or nothing person. So maybe before when I didn't yes. drink, that was nothing. And now, if I'm honest, I can't I don't really ever have one drink. I either don't drink yes. at all, because I just say I'm not drinking, that's it, I'm not drinking yeah. today. Or if I have one glass of red, oh, I'll have another one. Oh now I'll have a cocktail. Oh, I yeah. feel great. I never have one. So but some people do, they just have one. So is this a personality thing where it's actually you've gotta go zero and commit to this idea that I some people do, right? And they, they track it, they say, right, I've been one year, two years, three years, and they never go Absolutely. back. I, and I think that that's always the challenge where you say everything's a personality thing. Everything. So the idea that, that I could give any single bit of advice here that relates to everyone is is always my terrifying nightmare because my, my life's been around personalization you know then i sit with a person and say yeah. what 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 will work for you so that's why i say the nuance i can't give to that answer because i don't know rightly as you say whether they are all in or all out or they 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 hate to fail so they don't like to do things they can't succeed at so you know giving generic strategy advice i think is really challenging i think you know within that scenario it, it's it's it requires a period of, of try and see but you know, I think the, your, the counsel there, which would be more as a, as a human being than as a, a health professional, is if people are dependent, you know, if a friendship is dependent on alcohol, then that river doesn't run very deep. You know, and therefore, mm. you know, when, when we look at real quality of life, it's about real relationships which operate on, on a real human level. We may only have a couple of them, but they can be incredibly satisfying. So if there's a group of people where yeah. the, the functionality only exists in the presence of alcohol, it's unlikely there's great there's great you know, human satisfaction and, and reward in that in the long run anyway. Mm. It's, it's a terrible, terrible answer, but I would say, you know, I always prefer to, to titrate than to go binary because I just think that's the way the world works. You can, it's a bit like a health retreat, you can do it for a bit and then come to reality. So you can do a stop toga and then in November say, right, I'm gonna drink 50% less or I'm gonna have four to five days of abstinence rather than two days of abstinence, which is the days where I don't drink. Yeah. But I think finding a strategy that, that fits your personality type and your, and your upcoming social calendar don't give it up when there's three weddings, a bar mitzvah and a, and a christening, you know, it just, it just, it's going to fall apart. But choosing a block of time where you can adhere to it and seeing how those relationships evolve, because so often we create false scenarios that never execute. You know, they would say, yes, you know, yeah. oh, what, what a stressful life I had, you know, anticipating all the things that never happened to me. And so, yeah, you know, to, it, might to, it might be fine. You know, in most cases, it will be fine. You might be the catalyst for the whole group. You know, there's other people in the group that go, actually, I don't want to drink anymore either. I'm going to go with Amazing. you. So, you know, start a start a revolution. So this question was about ritual and habit. And this lady says that she enjoys the ritual of having an alcoholic drink every night. Probably all the things that you've described come in, end of work. It's like a signal at the end of the day. It's relaxing. So her question is, how can I still have this ritual? How can I replace this habit? And I'm not going to allow you to say mint tea. Um, yeah, what would your suggestion to her be? Chamomile tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, two things. She's, if you're if you're raising that question, you're probably aware that it's causing a problem. You know, and I flip that that one drink. You know, I've seen lots of people where I've measured their sleep cycles and measured their cortisol, melatonin, and all those other markers, and and that one drink is is not causing them any problems whatsoever. You know, different um, weights, different ethnicities. We all process alcohol differently. There, there's a gene that breaks down alcohol manufacturing something called alcohol dehydrogenase. Some people have a really accelerated version of that. You might call them the heavy boozers. Some people have a decelerated version. You might call them lightweights. So, you know, if you're someone who naturally detoxifies alcohol better than me, and I'm putting myself in the lightweight bracket, then actually uh, you'll find that, that that one 
drink may not affect you anywhere near as much as a lighter, less genetically effective counterpart. So just a quick caveat there. We don't know one drink would, would, would be a problem. I think, again, you've got to look at what, what, the, what the drink is doing. Right, so what, yeah, it's ritualistic, but you can have a ritual of changing and doing 15 minutes of stretching. You can have a ritual of doing 10 minutes of breathing or grounding, taking your shoes and socks off, standing on the grass outside. You can have um, 10 minutes of listening to a headspace meditation. You can have 10 minutes of playing a game. You can have you know come home and, and do a very light exercise session. Showers, baths, change of, of clothing is absolutely critical, boundaries. Um, it could be that you cook something that becomes part of your ritual. You know, you can put anything into that ritualistic space, um, mm. which, which is synonymous with I'm now home. Yeah, and I, and I think yeah. again, changing clothes, when particularly people used to go to work and now, you know, and, and they say, you know, you're working from home and then that you got flipped to, well, now I'm living at work, you know, I'm at home. Yeah. And we would say, try and do what, what you've fantastically done by creating an office space at home. But equally, sometimes you need to change clothing in and out of that space. And, you know, some great sleep scientists that I've worked with in the past have really advocated for having a jacket you put on every time you go into a space and then taking that jacket off. So there's some kind of ritual and boundary that says, that's work, Ollie. This is play, you know, husband, dad, Ollie. That's, you know, social, Ollie. Because those cues enable different parts of us to come out at the right time. Um, and if, if yeah, that fails, chamomile tea. Really... tea. <laughs> if that fails sorry have a tea but though I, I think that's a really important point and I think marking the end of the day is so important even if you're not working from home even if because our work goes with us everywhere in our phone on our phones in our pocket so I think that's a really a really great thing for people to do anyway in addition is just create some kind of ritual at the end of your day my husband talks a lot about doing a false commute he calls it convert the commute or a fake commute where at the end of your working day even if you've been working from home you go for a walk around the block or a cycle or a jog can even just be five minutes, 10 minutes doesn't have to be, you know, out for a 10K, yep. but you just do that. And as soon as you walk back in the door, you know, kick your shoes off, like you said, take, maybe get, have a shower, get changed. Now you're home. That is, you know, switching off from the emails, that even the thinking about work yep. things and you're into your, into your home space. Percent. I would say okay, one additional then... thing you can do there is have a different scented um, shower gel, body wash for the morning and one for the evening. So you start to, to oh, build that. So layers. So, yeah. There's so levels. Always, there's always like like the ongnon, as they say in France. There's another layer underneath. So you know, oh. very much citrusy, you know, invigorating smells and scents in the morning, and then lavender, jojoba, you know, some some more soothing elements in the evening. That you know, we, we respond very much. Our memories associated with with smell, as we brightly know, it, it's our strongest mm. it's our strongest memory sense. So change the yeah. change the smell, change the scent, change the clothes, change the vibe. And maybe alcohol doesn't need to be a big part of that. Yes. Okay. And so the last one, which is a really important question, actually, and this is about the stigma that is still surrounds alcohol, alcoholism, people who might feel as though actually they've listened to this podcast and they've thought, you know what, I, I drink a lot. Maybe I drink on my own at home. Maybe I drink in social settings. Maybe I drink more than I'd like to drink and more than I'd like to tell people that I drink. And this question comes from someone who said, specifically for mothers, what could they do if they feel as though that stigma is stopping them from reaching out, maybe reaching, speaking to a GP, maybe being honest in fear that there's going to be some repercussions. So social services are going to come and, and you know, take the children away or, you know, and I know that that might sound extreme, but I do think for pe for some people that is a real concern. So yeah, mm. what would your advice be to that totally question? Totally agree. I mean, you've got to remember that, that your GPs, A, are a confidential practitioner, so they're not going to be sharing that out. And, and they're on your side. 
So I, you know, I, I think to extrapolate from I've got a problem to sort of punishment or repercussion, rather than thinking there's going to be care, there's going to be compassion, there's going to be treatment pathways, there's going to be specialists. I, I have a, uh, a close friend in the village who works in an alcohol dependency unit, and, and I couldn't think of a, a more wonderful person I'd want by my side, you know, in, in trying to help me manage that effectively. You know, the, the, the first thing people do when you flag a problem isn't to say, let's get the authorities involved, let's shut down it. You know, these are people who are trained professionally in, in care. And sometimes we look at the system and go, the system is a, is a beast and it's amorphous. But in the heart of the system, you know, I still think, you know, almost every doctor I've worked with is, is you know, is coming to that profession for the right reasons, for the right incentives. And you'll meet care, compassion and quality. And I think trying to self-solve these problems is, is a modern day phenomenon because we can find information out online because there's opinions on socials on, on you know, don't you, you don't have to become a proxy medical professional. If you're if you don't think your relationship with, with that particular component, alcohol is is where you want it to be at the GP, share that openly and honestly. And what you'll find is is some really great support. Um, I would again, in all cases, there's caveats and outliers. But don't let the, the some some people's brand of what they think the, the NHS or healthcare is dissuade you from taking it up when you need it most. And and that's if you think it's enough of a problem to warrant that conversation, then it is. That that's threshold enough. That, yeah. It doesn't need to be full blown alcoholism or I can't wake up without having a drink before you would reach out for help. Because the earlier you access some some guided support, the less likely you are to ever end up there, if, if at all. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Ollie. Okay, so for the final part of the podcast, of course, we always talk about the power hour. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Ollie, but I do because it was brilliant. So you told us that your power hour, your morning routine involves your two children. And you told us how you and your wife would go, you have two twins, would go into each of their rooms, see them in the morning, have a cuddle, wake them up, and then you swap, and then you go and see right. the other one, which I thought was brilliant. I still have this Over-sharing. image in my mind. Oversharing. No, but I love that. I mean, I hope they won't mind in 10 years they time. They'll be like, Dad, why did you tell people that? Hopefully you're not still doing it in 10 years More the point. But I'd love to know, has your power hour changed since then? Obviously, we're in a new season now. It's the end of the summer, but kids have gone back to school. It's September. Yeah, what's your what's your current power hour like, or is it it's, still the same? It's, it's exactly the same because you know until wow. they you know hit puberty, we're, we're in that you know glorious window prepubescent. You know we're, we're they're, they're they're growing daily, but they're still tender. They're still you know they're they're, they're wise to the world, but innocent. You know from a from a development point of view. So um, while they're still happy for us to have. Morning snuggles, you know, and, and that routine to be part of our lives, we'll, we'll keep it going exactly as it is until they turn around and go, isn't it a bit weird, this dad, <laughs> mum, that you're sort of, you know, not just sending us with an alarm clock or whatnot. So it's a, it's a very simple morning existence, but, you know, I, I am grateful for it every day. And, it, and it's, you know, it's, the, it's everything that comes thereafter is a, is a blessing on top, truth be told. Mm. Yeah, I think enjoy it, Ollie. Embrace it and enjoy it. I listened to a podcast with Professor Scott Galloway. I'm not sure if you listen to that. If not, I'm going to send yeah. it to you. You definitely yeah. should. And he talks, a, he talks a lot about his sons. He talks a lot at the end of episodes. He talks about fatherhood. He's got a son that's 14 and a son that's 12. And he talks a lot about, you know, masculinity, about fatherhood, about the fact that, yeah, they're changing, their relationship's changing. And um, my son's 12, so I'm seeing it as well. And I think a lot of parents, so much of the focus of parenting 
is on the naught to five. Yeah. You know, it's on the newborn, it's on the early days, it's on development. It's like, oh, you're a new mum, you're a new dad. It's like parents, parents, parents. And then I think after they go to school, it gets a little bit less, then they get a little bit older, and then they go to secondary school. And it's kind of, I don't know, it's almost as though people, you don't have, you're not a parent anymore. You're still a parent. And so many of these dynamics, I think, impact our lives. They impact our behaviours. They impact our every single thing that we do. You know, I certainly haven't changed in, in that aspect of being a parent. It's just different now. So yeah, I think it's important sometimes to hear from people talking about their relationship with their kids, even when they are 10, 18, 20, because it's, it's so much of us. That, you know? I, I, a, I'd love to listen to that podcast and B, I agree. You know, it, it's one, it's sort of unashamedly the greatest joy of my life. I, I know these 10 years so far and, and every summer now, every, these will be the years that when I'm lying, heaven forbid, in, in my later years, these will be the, the period I reflect back on. You know, we know when I pass away, I won't reflect on my business successes per se. I won't reflect on, you know, the, the, the nights out. I'll reflect on the, the, the meaningful, powerful moments I had with, with my children, with my wife, with my parents, you know, the people in my immediate circle. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not going to wait to the end of my life to reconcile that against my priority list. That, that's, that's my plan. Mm -hmm. What a lovely place to end the episode. Ollie, thank you so much for joining us yet again. You're an absolute star. You're absolutely brilliant. And as I said, you've gone from an acquaintance. You are now officially a friend. You're in the fold. You're a oh, lifer. Well, I couldn't be happier. That's the, that's the only badge I'm going to wear openly in public. I'm sticking with that other jacket. A joy to be with you. Brilliant, brilliant podcast, as you always do. So um, I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. As always, I'll be back next week with another episode. See you. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com